Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 38. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Micah. Well, good morning to each one of you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and we're really glad that you've taken time to be with us this Sunday. What do you want? What do you want? That is the question that our scripture reading ended with this morning from Jesus. What do you want? And if I were to ask that question just for right now, in this moment, what do you want? Like immediately right now, you might be thinking, maybe I want another coffee, maybe another donut, uh, or, or maybe like, actually I'm just eager to uh, kind of, you know, service over, go home, get ready for the Chiefs game. And I think probably what all of us want in that regard is that it would be a great game, but not quite as close as last week, right? Uh, I think I, I think for most people in the room, that's one of the things that you want today uh, in this moment. Uh, and another thing, though, so that's like kind of right now, what do you want? Maybe a, a Chiefs win, another donut, maybe some lunch. Uh, but like, let's kind of zoom out like broader. Like, what what do we want in in life? And and maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, I what I really want is I, I want a better job uh, because the one that I have is just miserable, or I, I feel like I need um, more. You know, inflation's real, and I'm having a harder time uh, meeting those bills each month. Maybe it's a better job. Maybe maybe you've longed for a child. Maybe you've been hoping for that, longing for that. Or, or, or a spouse. Maybe you, you just long to fit in at school, to not feel like you're the only one uh, who's on the outside. Uh, maybe you want, maybe you, maybe you just want to not feel pain anymore. Maybe, maybe you're here and, and you've wrestled with, with pain, maybe chronic pain, maybe, maybe you've had a back pain or some other kind of injury, and you're just like, I just don't want to hurt anymore. You know, I, I've wrestled with depression or anxiety or other mental illness, and, and I just want to be whole again. I want to feel like I'm not afraid of, of slipping back into that darkness, or I want to feel like I'm, I'm not afraid of, of descending into that, that place of, of a panic attack anymore. I, I just want to be happy. I want to be at rest. You know, whatever that wanting is for you, it's undeniable that we as human beings, as human creatures, we are wanting creatures. We are desiring creatures. And that's not an accident. That's not a bad thing. It's actually how we were designed. It's how we were made to, to be wanting creatures. And I want, just as we go through, like three quick insights, one from a philosopher, one from a pastor, one from a psychiatrist. So that also sounds like the beginning of, of a joke, right? Like a pastor, a philosopher, a psychiatrist walk into a bar. It's not a joke, but I actually tried to think, can I write a joke? I was like, writing jokes is not my thing um, to go along with it. I'm just going to give you the insights from these, these three people. So first, the philosopher. This is uh, philosopher James K. A. Smith writes this. He says, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. So that's James K. A. Smith, philosopher, reflecting on our nature as wanting creatures. Um, 
Here's another one. Uh, this is, I don't have a quote to go with, so I'm just going to kind of summarize. A pastor in Australia, kind of public intellectual named Mark Sayers, he identifies kind of three buckets or categories of longing that we have as people, as humans, that we have a desire for community, to, to feel a part of a family, a group, a, a tribe, a, a longing for community, a longing for freedom. So this sense of, of a longing, a wanting to, to be free, to, um, to have kind of a sense of control in our, in our lives and to choose our, our path, this idea of freedom. And then also we have a deep longing for meaning in life. And I think what Mark Sayers' insight is, is those kind of three buckets for meaning, for longing, for freedom. We, we have to have all of those to have this life of satisfaction, but that there, sometimes those things are in tension with one another, right? So if you put too much in the freedom category, you risk losing community, right? Because if you're going to be a part of a, of a family or a church family or a relationship or a marriage, like you're giving up some amount of freedom, right? You have to go even to work somewhere, to belong at a company. You're giving up some amount of freedom. So there's often tensions in our wantings. So that's, that's the pastor, Mark Sayers. Here's the psychiatrist and author, Kurt Thompson, writes this. He says, every baby's body comes out of the uterus hungering and thirsting for comfort, for nourishment. Newborns, infants, and toddlers are bounding bundles of desire and thoroughly unselfconscious about it. He keeps going here. He says, as, as it turns out, this depth of desire only stops when we're dead. The question then is not if we want. The question is what we want, which is exactly what Jesus asks. In fact, Jesus' very first words in the Gospel of John, the first words that Jesus, we hear Jesus speak in John's Gospel, are those words, what do you want? And I spent a lot of time this week thinking about that because uh, John, who's writing these words for us, he was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his first disciples, knew Jesus really well, and toward the end of his life, he sits down to write this account of Jesus' life and his work so that others would come to know and, and have the hope that he found in Jesus. And, and I said, like, because this is not, like, he's not just kind of throwing down stuff at random here. He's been really thoughtful in how he's laid out this work. So it's not an accident that these are the first words that we hear from Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of different moments that John could have recorded of the first thing that Jesus says. But this is the one he chooses to open his gospel with. What do you want? And again, this is a tough question for us as humans to answer because we have lots of desires and many times those desires are in conflict with one another, right? We often experience a warring between a strong desire in a moment and the, and, but our long-term deep desires are not always the same, right? So you can have a, a battle between your strongest desires and your deepest desires. So an extreme example, right? Like maybe a really extreme example is like a one-night stand where you might have a, a strong desire in the moment to sleep with this person that's in deep conflict, right? With your deepest desire to, to have this healthy marriage for as long as you both shall live. Now that's an extreme example, but here's a less extreme one. Right? Maybe you have a deep desire to, to be someone who reads, to, to be a, a, like a well-read, thoughtful person. 
But that deep desire for your life is often in conflict with your strongest desire at any moment to, to watch a YouTube video or to, to scroll Instagram. I mean, I know it's true in my life. I love to read, but often, and I would say usually my deepest desire is to pick up a, a good book and read it. But in the moment, like often my strongest desire is to, that's work, is to just actually, let me watch another home improvement YouTube videos. So our, our strongest desires, our deepest desires are often not the same and they're often in conflict with one another. And here's what John wants us to see as we read his account of Jesus, especially here. And, and fair warning, what I'm about to say is actually exactly what you would expect a pastor to say in church. So I'm just, I'm just giving you fair warning. Is that following Jesus is where we find what we want the most. That following Jesus is where we find what we want the most. Okay, so I, you're probably not shocked that a pastor standing up in church is saying, actually, Jesus is the answer to what you want. It's probably not a stunning, I never expected he was going to say that moment. In fact, maybe you're kind of tempted to tune out either because like, okay, I've heard this message before, or like, I don't buy that, I'm skeptical of that. Either way, maybe you're tempted to, to scroll uh, Chiefs News or Facebook right now. I understand that. So that's, I'm not expecting you to be surprised or overwhelmed by that statement. Here's what I think is surprising, and this is why I hope you stay with me, is why that's the case. And that's what I want us to look at in this passage as it goes on, is why is it that following Jesus is where we find what we want the most? I think that's what's surprising. And we're going to do that by looking at Jesus' encounter with two different people here. One's named Simon, and one's name is Nathaniel. And as we look at their stories, we're going to try to understand the reason why following Jesus is where we find what we want the most. So let's look at Simon's story first. As we've been walking through the Gospel of John, um, we've encountered now this guy named John the Baptizer. And this is one of those confusing moments in the Bible where a key character in John's Gospel and early on is John the Baptizer, who's a different John. So John the Baptizer, not the guy who wrote the Gospel, uh, but the guy who is a forerunner to Jesus is baptizing people. That's what Pastor Taylor introduced us to last week. John had these disciples. He was preparing people for the Messiah, and he's pointing Jesus out now to people and saying, look, behold, there is the Lamb. He, this is the one that my whole life has been pointing to. And he had two disciples, Andrew and another one who's not named here, which is probably actually John the Apostle who's writing this. And they're with John the baptizer there, and Jesus is walking by, and John the baptizer is like, hey, there he is. Behold the lamb. And they go and follow him. And it's to Andrew and this other guy that Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? And as you would imagine, a question like that asked by Jesus, uh, the whole conversation goes into the next day. They say, Jesus, where are you staying? He says, come and see. They hang out with him. And they're just blown away by this conversation with Jesus. And Andrew is so, like, stunned by this conversation with Jesus. He says, I've got to go get my brother Simon and tell him about this. And so Andrew says this in verse 41. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And you might mean that actually doesn't help me a lot. I don't know what Messiah means. I also don't know what Christ means. Um, they both just mean the anointed one. The idea of the chosen king of Israel who's going to finally deliver God's people, who's going to bring about the healing and restoration hope that they always have, long for the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And, and Andrew is saying, Peter, I found him. Excuse me, I already gave it away. Simon, I found him. You know him as Peter. We know him as Peter. But right now he's just Simon. 
Simon, I found this guy. And then kind of in a classic brother move, he practically drags Simon to come and meet Jesus. And then when he gets there to meet him, I love what John noticed and remembered when he wrote about this encounter between Jesus and Simon. Look at what he writes here. This is verse 42. And he, Andrew, brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him. Even before Jesus says anything to Simon, John just tells us that Jesus looked at him. I just think it's a fascinating detail that he includes. And I, maybe, I, maybe that look lasted a long time. Maybe it was brief. But there was something meaningful about that to, to, to John. And probably as he's talking to Simon years later, the first time I met Jesus, he just looked at me. And I wonder what Simon felt in those moments, that moment of that look from Jesus, the one who was the word in the beginning, who was with God, who created all things, including Simon, did he feel shame? Did he feel hope? Did he feel love, fear? Maybe some of all of it? I mean, I don't know. Maybe the look only lasts for a, a moment, but I mean, it contained a lifetime. Looking at Simon in that moment is the one who knows his beginning from the end, everything about him. And then he says this. He looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And you probably have, if you're looking at a printed Bible, you'll probably notice there's little footnotes down to the bottom which say that both of those in Aramaic and Greek, respectively, they mean rock. Which again, if you're familiar with the Bible and you've read this passage before, you kind of was like, oh yeah, like Jesus calls him Peter and means rock. But it's kind of like this is actually sort of a bizarre moment. It's like, imagine if I could go up to someone and it's like, oh, Peyton, son of Dan, you are now going to be called Spoon. You shall from now on be known as Spoon. It's like not only does he rename him, which is, that's kind of like, wait, who are you? Like, give me a new name. But like, you're not even calling me like a name. You're calling me a thing. Uh, Jesus says to him, you're, Simon, you are, you are now Rock. You're going to be known as Rock. And again, this is, feels weird. It's like, who has the right to define me? He gets to tell me who I am. But again, some, some context here on who this Peter is. He's, he's a fisherman. And he wasn't one of the religious or cultural elites. He didn't have political or economic power. Um, he is struggling like everyone else under the oppression of the Roman Empire in Palestine where they're living. And he just, he, he fished. He smelled like fish. He had a bad day. And in this moment, like, what does he want Again, he, he probably wanted what everyone else wanted, like someone to finally deliver them from Rome, for someone to, to come and to be the Messiah that they would hope for, to have a better life, for, for God to show up, for him to be able to, to make ends meet, to be whole, to be happy, to be okay. When the rest of the world just saw Simon, fisherman, trying to make it, Jesus looked at him. He looked at him and he said, I see rock. I see more, Simon. And I'm going to call out the best in you and make something of you that you never thought was possible. And here's why 
following Jesus is where we find what we want the most. Because Jesus is able to tell you who you truly are. Because Jesus is able to tell you who you truly are. And when you think about that question, what do you want? Uh, one of the most important answers to that question is I, I want to know who I am. I want to know what I'm called to do in life, why I'm here, why, what purpose do I have, who am I? And, and I know we feel this longing in our culture because, I mean, how many different, like, instruments, personality tests, um, skill set kind of evaluations, strengths finders, are, are there out there? I mean, like, I've done so many in my life, and, and they're helpful, right? But I can tell you I'm an Enneagram 9, who's a Myers-Briggs ENFP, who's working genius strengths are, are wonder and invention, who's working uh, frustrations are tenacity and galvanizing and that, you know, I, I have an avoidant attachment style. And all, I, mean, I can give you this whole, I can print off all these things. My strength, I'm input maximizer on the strength finder learner. And those things are all helpful. If you're on a team with someone to know each other in those ways and how you are, that's really helpful, right? So I'm not, I'm not down on that, but I just think it speaks to our longing to understand. And there's a reason we're drawn to those because it's like, oh yes, I can see myself there. That's right. I, I do act like that. That does make sense of that in my life. But even those, they tell us something about kind of like what we are, like this is kind of how I relate and this is what my personality is. But we still long to know who we are in a deep way, in a much deeper way. And only, I think, Jesus can do that work of speaking to who we truly are. Not just what I am, what my personality is, but who I am. And, and naming is such a big part of that. And if you were to go back to the very beginning of the Bible and read through the book of Genesis, you see at really key moments when God meets people, he often gives them a new name, right? Abraham and Sarah are a great example that when God is sort of restarting this project that he began with Adam and Eve in the garden of having these human partners who are going to rule the world with him and spread blessing and goodness and delight, that he intended from the beginning. And this new project, he renames them from Abraham and Sarah to Abraham and Sarah. And when Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is about to step into this key moment of his role in the story, his name is changed to Israel. And it doesn't even work in, always in the positive way. We often see that when people uh, like Israelites are taken into captivity, say, to the Babylonian Empire, guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We know they're actually Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We know they're, those are their, their Babylonian names. They were given new names to redefine them as now you are part of this Babylonian culture. We're, we're taking your name away from you. Naming is such a big deal in who we are, who our identity is. And when Jesus finds you, when he looks at you, you begin to come to know who you truly are and what your calling is. I think this is so key, that our primary calling in life is not to a particular career, or maybe you're in the college search season, it's not to a particular college or school, it's not even to a particular city or, or a particular relationship or person, a spouse. It is first and foremost to the one who's made you. That's where we discover who we truly are. It's in that primary calling to the one who has made you, who gets to define who you are. 
Now then in life, we have lots of secondary callings that change throughout time, different careers, different cities, different schools, maybe a season of parenting or a season of, of, of marriage that they're all really important and, and, and a part of our story, but they are never, so the problem though becomes when we look to those secondary callings of, oh, I am a fill in the blank of your career, or I am married, or I am single, or in that status or career or job defines who you are, you're always going to feel the, there's a sense of, of, this just isn't enough. It's only when you have that primary calling that all those secondary ones begin to make sense and can fit in the right place. That we can find our true identity that is bigger than, more extensive beyond I'm a pastor, or I'm a husband, or I'm a Kansas Cityan, or I'm an American. But as important as that is to know who we are, and it, it is vital and transformative, it's also not enough. Because as much as we want to know who we are, we also want to be known. We also want to be known. Which brings us here to the second main reason that I think following Jesus is where we find what we want the most. And we see it in Nathaniel's story. And again, I love John's realism and how he records this moment about Nathaniel. So if you go down to the next verse here, Philip, who's another one of these followers of Jesus that we meet in this passage, uh, he, he meets Jesus. He's super excited about it. And he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel to tell him about Jesus. And if you look down at verse 45, you see this moment unfold. And he says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's saying, we have found the one that the whole Old Testament, all the promises for the last however many thousands of years we've been waiting to be fulfilled. I found him. And, and guess what, Nathanael? It's Joseph, the son of Joseph. You know, that illegitimate son. There's a bunch of questions about it, kind of what happened with him and Mary. And also he's from that ha- town that everybody hates. Nazareth? Because it's like, Philip, I mean, God bless him, it seems like he didn't take like a, a class ahead of time on like cultural intelligence on if you're going to tell someone about the Messiah, maybe don't lead with the two things they're going to hate about what you're about to say. Because there's like two major strikes in what Philip says here. One is he's Joseph's son. And again, this is, they're up in Galilee in the north part of the country, which is where Jesus lived, where Joseph and Mary were from, this is not a lot of people. Like, they, it's not surprise. it wouldn't be surprising if Nathaniel knew about kind of the rumors about, yeah, Joseph and Mary, she was pregnant before they got married, and there's always these kind of questions about Jesus, and was he really legitimate? You can see this in the Gospels. This always plagued Jesus because of the uniqueness of how he was born. So one— how could that possibly be the Messiah, Philip? And then two, he's from Nazareth. In fact, he says, what good can come out of Nazareth? It's kind of harsh. Because we know from history that the southern part of, of Israel-Palestine, known as Judea, Judah, was kind of more the elite section. The people up in northern Galilee were kind of considered these sort of it's kind of the country. It's the backwater. They had an accent. People, the city folk didn't like that. 
But like even in Galilee, like they looked down on Nazareth. We don't know why, but it was like even in, in, in the kind of the looked down upon portion, even the people in that section looked down on this city. And that's where Jesus is from. And so again, Nathaniel's response here is as honest as it is harsh. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come on, Philip. Philip just says to him, come and see. Come and see. And when he does, when Jesus sees Nathaniel walking toward him, he declares this in verse 47. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I mean, Jesus is meeting Nathaniel for the first time, and just that's how he greets him. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It almost sounds like it could be sarcastic, right? And actually, Nathaniel, it seems like maybe thought so too. He's like, verse 48, how do you, how do you know me? Jesus, how do you know me? Never seen you before. How can you say that about me? And then Jesus says to him, again, continuing in verse 48, before Philip called you, Nathaniel, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And again, this is one of those mysteries where I'm like, I wish John would tell us more here. So what does it mean he was under the fig tree? Was he just like taking a nap? I don't, I don't know. We don't know exactly what that means. Commentators, interpreters have lots of different, like, what does it mean that Jesus saw him under the fig tree? But somehow it's clear that by Nathaniel's response that this blows him away, that Jesus, there's no way he could have possibly known that about him because he just responds with this utter amazement. Philip was right. You are You are him, the rabbi, the son of God, king of Israel, all of it. You must be him. You are the one. Jesus saw him. Even before Nathaniel ever knew anything about Jesus, had ever heard of him, Jesus saw him and knew him. All of him. Even when Nathaniel thought that no one was looking, no one could see him, Jesus saw him. And, this is key, and he loved him And he loved him anyway. And here's why following Jesus is where we find what we want the most. Is that Jesus truly knows and truly loves you. Jesus truly knows you, completely knows you, and he still loves you anyway. Jesus is who we want and what we want because he knows and loves us anyway. This is the great struggle, friends, in our lives, isn't it? I mean, there's this massive tension all throughout our lives of this, that we want to, we so desperately want to be known. But here's the thing that we have to manage. How much can I let myself be known and still have people love me? Because here's the fear, that I have to either choose, I have to choose between being known and being loved. I can can not let people really know me and, and then they can love me. Or, I could let people really know me, everything about me, kind of the deepest, the ugliest, the stuff that I've just blown it, failed big time, but then they, wouldn't, they couldn't possibly love me if they really knew me. And I think we feel this all the time in our day-to-day relationships, in friendships, in work relationships, even in, in our marriages, with our parents, with our kids, where we're always doing this dance of how much can I let this person love, know me and still have them love me? How much can I let them see who I really am and not have them walk out of the room on me? I just want to tell you that there in the person of Jesus is someone who knows you completely and will not leave you. 
who knows you fully and loves you anyway. In Jesus, you find someone who can see all of the goodness, the beauty, the creativity, the potential of this image-bearing human who he made. That maybe you don't even, you can't even see the goodness that's there. And he also sees the ugliness, the selfishness, the pettiness, the bitterness, the mistakes, the failures, the way that you have sent shrapnel and it's absolutely ruined other people's lives. things that you are so embarrassed to, to name to any other human being that you've done or that you've thought. He sees it all. And he loves you anyway. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Kurt Thompson says again, he, he writes this. He, he says, we want him, Jesus, to love us and for others to do the same. But Jesus won't force us to tell him that any more than he forced John's disciples to have the right answer at the ready when he asked the question, what do you want? He'll wait until we have exhausted our other resources and then exhausted ourselves. Jesus isn't impatiently waiting for us merely to give him the right answer before he acts on our behalf. No, he is waiting for us to allow him to love us. That's what Jesus is waiting for you. He's not waiting for you to give the right answer to some kind of theology quiz. He's waiting for you to say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with the thing that I am so terrified to admit to anyone else. The places of utter brokenness and failure that I have kept hidden, that I worked so hard to keep hidden. And Jesus, I'm going to invite you into that place. I'm going to let you hold on. I'm going to let you see it. And I'm going to let you trust you that you won't leave me. And that maybe someday I even get to be a part of a community of people who, who I can bring into some of my story and who they, because they've also experienced that kind of love of Jesus, that they won't also leave me. And so our invitation today, as unbelievable as that may seem of a claim from Jesus is to, that he will ever leave you, is just to come and see. It's, it's, what, it's what happens, the, the invitation all throughout the sex, come and see for yourself. Come and try him. Whatever it is you're chasing in life, whatever you think is the best, the, the claim of Christianity is that following Jesus is where we find what we want the most. And I actually just want to give you a moment in this service uh, to pull out a pen or open up the notes app on your phone, or if you've got your, four, or your uh, E90 journal, whatever, if you've got a scrap of paper, I want you to get that out. And, and I just want you to jot down a couple of things that come to your mind when you ask that question, what do I want? Could it be something profound? Or it could be something seemingly mundane as like, I just, I want to, I want a new car because the one I have is just, it's broken and I don't know how I'm going to fix it. That's a big deal. I'm just saying, it could, it could be like, I, I, I just, I want to find the ultimate meaning in life or I just, I need to know how I'm going to pay the bills at the end of the month. It, it, it could be, I just, one of the things we talked about at the beginning, 
You know, I, I want to be whole again. I don't want to grieve anymore. I don't want to be sad anymore. I don't want to, I want purpose. I want release from pain. I want relationship or friendship or hope to be known, to be loved, to be reconciled in relationship, to, for justice to be done, a, a better world. Just whatever it is, just write down a couple of those things. Or at least think through it. And my encouragement for you this morning as you think about those things, and this is why I want you to write it down or capture it in some way, is just throughout this week, bring that to Jesus. How often do we do that? How often do I do that? God, here are my wants. Here are my desires. I'm naming them before you. This is what I want. And I don't even know if these are the things I should want, Jesus, but here is what I want. I'm going to be honest with this is what I want. Maybe what you want is to be left alone. <laughs> even by God. Tell him that. Here's what I want. Because as you bring those wants and you bring those desires to Jesus, here's the, the beautiful thing that happens. He's able to, uh, to properly order those desires. He's able to reorder those desires. He's able to redeem those desires, to put them in their proper place. And so they work as they're supposed to work. And that's often a lifelong process. I'm not saying that happens in a minute, but as you keep bringing those wants and you keep being honest with Jesus, but this is what I want. Even if you feel like, I shouldn't want this, but Jesus, this is what I want. He will do that. That's what it is to follow him. Uh, James K.A. Smith points this out so well. He says this, and we'll wrap up here. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires. And none of us can do that on our own, but Jesus can heal our desires. He can heal our wantings. He can do this for you because he is what John the baptizer said, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who heals the wounds of your misdirected wantings, the wounds in your own life and the shrapnel that those misdirected wantings have sent out into the lives of those that you love, who satisfies your deepest longings. And at one level in this life, we will always wrestle with the sense that, to echo you too, that we still haven't found what we're looking for. We're always gonna be in that place. But keep going back to Jesus again and again until the day that your faith is sight and you fully know, even as you are already fully known and fully loved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that in Jesus we are fully known and fully loved, that we are forgiven, justified, that we're declared righteous even now because of the finished work of Jesus and that you're by the power of your Holy Spirit in ways that we can't even begin to fully understand that you are at work in our life beginning to make us into the people that we already will be one day when your work of making us whole is complete. And there is shame in our hearts that keeps us from experiencing the deep love that you have for us. So by the power of the gospel now, we despise the shame as you despise the shame of the cross. And we boldly accept the love you have for us. Full stop. Thank you for knowing us and loving us anyway. In Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit.
Amen.